This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The bus station stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the radio show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And happy Easter, everyone. Uh, This is going to be a great show. Kirk, we're going to continue on with the topic of evolution. That seems to be on everyone's mind these days. It's one of the biggest requests I get for a topic to speak on. So we'll fill people in more on our series on evolution. We want people to know, though, that they can check us out at the website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. We have a Facebook page that you have been monitoring and filling stuff in and that's been going very well. And we also have podcasts. So if you like podcasts, which I do, listen to podcasts all the time, you can find us on iTunes or on Double Twist. And be sure to check out RoshoChristi.org to see what Rosho Christie is doing at universities and campuses around the United States and now around the world. And we were going to have a guest to speak about that international effort by Rosho Christie. John Stewart, but he has been ill, so we will reschedule that. So, Kirk, let's see here. I got a quote of the week, and this is from one of my other intellectual favorites. When I first became a Christian, I discovered C.S. Lewis, and I also discovered Francis Schaeffer, who doesn't get as much attention these days as he did uh, back when he was alive and for a few decades after he was alive, but Uh, There's a great quote by him that I wanted to give people. He says, I am only interested in an apologetic that leads in two directions. In the one is to lead people to Christ as Savior, and the other is that after they are Christians, for them to realize the lordship of Christ in the whole of life. If Christianity is truth, it ought to touch on the whole of life. Christianity must never be reduced merely to an intellectual system. After all, if God is there, it isn't just an answer to an intellectual question. We are called upon to adore him, to be in relationship to him, and incidentally to obey him. So there's a quote by Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you read much of Schaeffer, Kirk? Sure. The God Who Is There? Yep. Yeah, he's written a lot of great books. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you can get get a collected works by him, too, that's, I think, five volumes. That's really good, and I think he only wrote one more additional book after that was uh, published. So, let's see. Let's remind people about upcoming events. There is the Worldview Academy. That's summer camps for junior high, high school level, and that is a really good program, so we want to highlight that. You can find out information about that at worldview.org. 
their camps start around the United States June 9th and go through early October. So the one that's near Kirk and I is in Lancaster, PA, and that's July 21st through the 26th. So you definitely want to get your kids out to that so they can learn a little bit of the other side of the story from the secular mythology that they're getting in school. Or as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Now, we talked about we invited people to the Easter play that our church put on, and I had actually not seen it myself. It's always sold out, so I never want to kind of take a seat away from a visitor. But I finally went this year, and it was really well done. It's an you know obviously an amateur production, but uh, for a bunch of amateurs, I think they did a great job. Uh, it was a musical too, which was neat, and they adapted it. You know, they didn't try to stick literally verbatim to one of the gospels. They had some dramatic adaptations and they did a wonderful wonderful job they had uh, a lamb uh, in the the play no camels uh, or donkeys or anything but at least a lamb uh, a lot of singing and somewhere more than a hundred uh, people in the play well wow. so yeah so it was really well done uh, let's see I did my talk also at Richard Stockton College on Is God Foolish? And that turned out very well. We had some atheists in the audience, and they right away were uh, jumping up with some objections. They were so stuck on the relativism of truth, you know, that something is your truth and my truth and things like that. I finally had to say, you know what, we've got to refrain. We have to have the discussion at the end. So unfortunately, uh, they apparently came together and they had a a class, and so they had to leave after about a half an hour. Uh, They uh, told us at the beginning that they were going to bail in a half an hour, but hopefully they will come back to some of the Ratio Christi meetings. The thing I don't understand about relativism is they say there's no objective truth, but then they say their belief in relativism is objectively true. Yeah, exactly. Well, they I think they don't realize that what they're saying is supposed to be objectively true. So they've got the secret truth uh, is that, you know, they're the only ones that know what's really going on, and that is that everybody's truth is subjective, except for that. So Yeah, I love these people that say, well, you can't know whether anything's true or not, but we know that what we believe is true. Right, right. So, um, so it just goes to show the importance of addressing this topic of relativism you know no matter how many times you knock it down there's still somebody who hasn't heard that it is self-refuting so i think we're gonna have to cover this more in the future and uh, continue to put it into sunday schools and you know uh, just reach out to people with this idea because it's so insidious it's even actually creeping into churches and they think that truth is subjective, you know, what's true for you is not necessarily true for me, and that is, of course, ridiculously self-refuting. Well, I, I think it's mostly, it's a convenient excuse for not dealing with the hard truths of life. If you just say, well, there is no truth, then you don't have to deal with any of it. <laughs> That's right. And and also, it helps get rid of right and wrong. Sure. You know, there isn't any kind of moral code. So that's where it really starts at, is the idea of I'm not doing anything wrong. You can't, how dare you say I'm doing something wrong? That's just your truth. So it starts out that way, but then it blends over into all 
all truth. You know, so uh, we saw that in the Clinton administration, right, with their their you know what is the meaning of the word is. You know, and truth is what you make it out to be. Yeah. So well. I got into a part of the discussion got bogged down because. They were talking about objective and subjective, so I was trying to describe the difference to them, and they may, said something about subjective truth, and I gave an example. I said, no, that's that's not subjective truth. Here's an example of something that would be subjective, and I said, for instance, if I said, I am hungry. Well, then they came back at me saying that that isn't, so they wanted to disagree with that, that that isn't actually subjective if I if they cut you open and examined your you know stomach and the nerve endings <laughs> and stuff that you could determine whether that was a true statement or not but that was in contradiction to what they were saying they were saying that all all truth is subjective so they're saying so then i give them an example of no that's you know what you're talking about is not an example of subjective truth here is what subjective truth and they come back and say no that's not subjective so they were actually arguing against themselves uh. <laughs> so um no the truth of the matter is your truth is subjective and my truth is objective <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's what i should say uh. all right well we've got a interesting news item just in time for easter this is about the Shroud of Turin, and I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Shroud. I don't know, Kirk, if you did much research on the Shroud. I don't think it's in your book, but uh, we should go over it because there's some new dating that was done. But people have heard a bunch of different things. I was on a atheist Facebook page that I occasionally drop in on just to see uh, what they are beating each other up over. Uh, it's supposed to be a, a page where they have atheists and theists can come to discuss things together, but it turns out that there's like 99% atheists and they just fight each other constantly and and uh, <laughs> see who can out um, mock uh, any theists that, that might show up. Uh-huh. And lots of cussing, and you know, it's a very, very vulgar site, but uh, they don't seem to mind that. Uh, anyway, and there was a lot of the, somebody brought up the Shroud of Turin, and there was a lot of misinformation about it. You know, as you can well imagine. So we should go over it a little bit. I think most people are aware that the Shroud of Turin is a supposed burial cloth of Jesus Christ. It has an image that is somehow imprinted on it, and in the past they were not really able to tell how it was imprinted. And scientists were allowed to study it in a couple of sessions in the 1970s and in the 1980s. And they found a lot of indications that it was, in fact, a burial cloth from the first century. They found soil from the around the foot of where the body would have been. So they and they tested the soil. It was it came from Palestine. There was pollen in the cloth that also could only come from Palestine. It was species of plants that only lived around the Jerusalem area and. Uh, I believe those were carbon dated to the first century. I'll have to double check that. But regardless, they found lots of really interesting details about the shroud, looking at it microscopically. Uh, one of the things they found is that there was no dyes or tints on the 
fabric itself, so it was not painted. It was somehow a coloration of the fibers themselves. Lots of interesting details. Blood flow. Um, there was oh, there were actual uh, hemoglobin. They were able to determine real hemoglobin. Um, the blood flowed in the correct direction. So if this was an artistic impression, the person did it excruciatingly accurately. Um, so that you know, even though the arms and the image are not up like they would be when they're crucified, the blood flow that is on the arms was in the correct direction, and gravity, the way gravity would have had the blood flow was all exactly correct. Uh, let's see. There was a claim about coins being on the eye, but I've looked into that, and I don't think that that is true. I think that's a little bit of imagination with some you know really strong microscopes that you know just are, are finding a kind of you, you're at the the edge of the ability to resolve you know the resolution of the image is just not that good um so i think that that's a little bit overblown i don't think there really were coins on the eyes but uh regardless of that then in the 80s they were allowed to take samples of the shroud for carbon dating and of course they didn't want to damage the shroud so they took a couple of samples from the corners and just little postage stamp sized pieces and then those were carbon dated but they carbon dated to the 1400s so uh, that was a bit of a disappointment uh, until it came to light that some of the people that were testing the pieces noticed that there was different strands there were different types of fiber in the sample so that at the at the edge of the square they had there were some fibers that had been woven in uh, with the fabric of a different type of material and so they pulled those fibers out well what it turned out was that those fibers were the fibers of the shroud of turin and that the square that they were given was actually a patch that had been woven in. So there were patches on the shroud that were from a fire, but those were later, and those had been sewn in, and you could you know, clearly distinguish them, but these patches were an earlier patch that had been very meticulously woven into the material. And so at first glance, you weren't able to tell that this was a patch because it wasn't sewn on. But further examination of the shroud proved that where the squares were taken out was actually a woven patch, and it was a, a piece of material from the 1400s. So that kind of messed that up, and the owners of the shroud, the Church of Turin, didn't want to have to cut more pieces out. So it kind of left it, it basically meant that the carbon-14 dating was kind of wasted time. Hmm. Well, now there's been new research done that was done by the University of Padua in northern Italy. And this was published in a uh, new book called The Mystery of the Shroud. And, oh, you know, I should, before we get to this latest evidence, I should mention something that was discovered a year or two ago by researchers on the shroud. They were finally able to figure out what made the impression. There was a lot of speculation. It could have been, I, I think I talked about one years years back it, it held the most promise that it was a uh, sugary coating that was on the fibers and then that 
sugar-like coating that, that came from the soap that the cloth would have been washed in had turned dark brown because of ammonia gas given off by a dead body that would have appeared about uh, three days into um, the body um, being dead. But uh, this turned out uh, not to work out when it was tried experimentally to be able to repeat the image. There was It just didn't work. You, you would get kind of brownish blobs, um, but you just wouldn't get the kind of image. Uh, so, so it turned out that that wasn't what it was. Um, so a couple of years ago, they figured out that, they, uh, that you can create an image on cloth like this by high voltage. So a burst of high voltage in, if I remember right, like the 15,000-volt range is enough to ionize the surface of the fibers, and they were able to duplicate the kind of imaging. And so, so now they can finally duplicate the image, and, but it requires high-voltage ionization. Hmm. So, um, so that basically was essentially a radiation event, um, high-voltage radiation event at the resurrection uh, that could have caused uh, the image. And um, so this new information, though, so that was that brings us up to a couple of years ago. This new information, though, is the dating of the shroud using infrared. So what it says is that uh, Professor Giulio Fonti, a professor of mechanical and thermal measurement at Padua University and a team of research scientists used infrared light and spectroscopy, the measurement of radiation intensity through wavelengths to analyze fibers from the shroud. And the tests dated the age of the shroud to be between 300 BC and 400 AD. Hmm. So that's very interesting. In the middle of that, I mean, if you, if you, that's your range. So the middle of that is 50 AD. So even though it's a bit of a broad range it's a little bit not quite as accurate of a test as carbon 14 but it did hit it spot on the middle of that range would be spot on so um, that's more confirming evidence that the shroud of turin really was uh, the burial cloth of christ hmm. wow so happy easter everybody <laughs> christ is risen yes sir all right let's see Let's jump into our topic. We're going to be talking about evolution here. Absolutely. And I guess we should remind people that if they're just joining us, they're listening to Evidence for Faith, the uh, Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program brought to you by Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. So we left off last time. We were talking about Micro and macro evolution, which is a very important distinction, and I don't think you can really understand the differences with the argument over evolution if you don't know what the difference is between these. So I really urge people to find that, you know, get that podcast, uh, look it up online, find out the difference between micro and macro, and you'll have a, a lot better understanding of evolution if you do that and you pointed out last week that a lot of the problem today is that a lot of evidence that supports microevolution is said to support macroevolution but it actually doesn't that's right yeah 
microevolution, the evidence for microevolution is real and it shows adaptation. It shows that animals do change over time and all of this is lateral. It's mixing up of information that's already there or it's degenerative. It's loss of genetic information. And so it never adds up to macroevolution. And macroevolution is not large change. Macroevolution is increase in information change. And that's the kind of change that just doesn't happen. Not only has it never been shown to happen, but experimentally, it doesn't happen. And if you think about it, it couldn't have it happen. It's kind of magical. It's just, you know, it's like a, um, what are those machines that continue to operate and never slow down or run out? A you perpetual know? motion machine? Perpetual motion machine. It's kind of like that. It's just, you know, there is no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. They do not work by the very nature of physics of the world around us. They don't work. And that's exactly what this would be. It would be a perpetual motion machine. Well, it, it's really kind of talking about magic when you're talking about, um, you know, grass evolving into a plant and a plant evolving into an animal and an animal evolving into a human being and you know it, it just really doesn't make a whole lot of rational sense when you uh, think objectively about it and you know to just look around you and think you know well you know there's an elephant and I have a pet dog you mean you know my pet dog eventually became an elephant at somewhere along the line it's like you know that's ridiculous right right or something like it, you know, the atheists always say, oh, well, it was a common ancestor, you know, okay, but the common ancestor, you know, it's just as if, it's not like uh, the common ancestor was half elephant, half dog, so. But the common ancestor, or the missing link, as they like to call it, has never been found. It's it's fantasy. Right, it's not right. something that's objectively real that they've found. So how do you know it's there? Right. And there would be millions of missing links. There should be, yeah. But we don't find that in the fossil record. Right. All right. So let's jump into what we're going to look at now is we're going to look at some of the discredited evidence. Now, some of the evidence for evolution does show microevolution. But what we now know is that that's all it shows. It shows only microevolution and not macroevolution. Right. The evidence may have been found to be tampered with and fraudulent or the evidence has just been uh, debunked by later evidence. So we'll get into some of the major, I guess these are called icons of evolution. These are the things that are said to prove evolution beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what they do prove is microevolution. Some of them do. So one of the things that has been used as evidence for evolution is the finch beaks on the Galapagos Islands, the so-called Darwin's finches and the beaks change in size so this was noticed by darwin and has been researched by further research in past years what it all shows though is just changes of a cyclical nature so the beak size will change back and forth based on the long-term weather patterns so if the offspring of the finches 
Some have larger, slightly larger beaks, and some have slightly smaller beaks, and the weather gets drier. There's less rainfall. The only kind of seed that is around for the birds is in harder, tougher uh, shells from previous seasons because there's not as much plant growth in the dry season. Then only the finches with the bigger beaks can crack open these harder shells and get at those seeds and then survive. And the finches with the smaller beaks can't get at the food source, the only remaining food source, and so they die off, and that genetic information is then lost. So what happens, though, is that the rainy season comes back again. So the it'll cycle through every few decades. You're getting different cycles of uh, raininess and dry weather, and so what's been noted is that the beak size just changes back and forth. So there's real nothing really going on here. There is just the information that was already there for making larger beaks and smaller beaks, and it just cycles back and forth in order for the finch to adapt to the current situation. And so this is one of the amazing things about animals that God has designed them to be able to adapt so that they can survive. If they couldn't adapt, they wouldn't survive, and the animals would have long ago become extinct. Couldn't you also kind of compare that to if you want to use human beings as an example? I've heard some interesting uh, ideas lately about the fact that uh, the when you think about the pioneers of the early American West and the very difficult lifestyle that they had when they went west and they had to um, basically conquer a wild land and build their own houses and you know a lot of physical effort involved in surviving under different uh, climate um, conditions and everything that they became a very physically hardy people during that period of time because they had to in order to survive the weak ones just didn't make it but now uh we're kind of doing the opposite now with modern technology and everything that we have today we're, we're kind of getting physically soft because we don't need to use our muscles or whatever all that much and you could kind of compare you know the the finch with a big beak and the finch with a small beak, you could compare that to a human being with big muscles and a human being with small muscles. They're just, you know, it's adaptations to whatever conditions you're living under at the time. Right. And and those kinds of short-term, you know, just a, a few generations, those really do happen. There's been lots of studies that have shown. And a lot of that has to do not so much with the DNA itself, but with what they call the epigenome. This is the methylation marks that are on the DNA that tell it how much protein to make, where to start producing things, when to stop, and things like that. So a lot of that we have now determined is changed by the environment. So you can actually start taking in different kinds of nutrients or uh, even minerals or carbon compounds, not carbon compounds, rather, I mean uh, chemical compounds, that will change those epi- those epigenetic codes, those methylation marks. So um, there's been some interesting studies 
and, and this basically then brings us a little bit towards kind of Lamarckian evolution. Do you remember Lamarckian evolution? It was a, a popular kind of evolution that was around before Darwin, um, and I guess a little bit after also became very popular in Russia. I know that. But he proposed that, for instance, the giraffe's neck would get longer because the giraffe kept trying to reach and get uh, leaves and trees. And so that kind of attempt to stretch would somehow be passed on to the offspring. Well, it turns out that you can actually pass things on to your offspring just by uh, ingesting certain chemical compounds or uh, nutrients, specific nutrients. So that's kind of interesting um, you know, we didn't know that before. You don't. You're not actually changing the DNA itself, but you're changing how the DNA is controlled, and even what is turned on or turned off. Would that be uh, similar to some of the news reports that I've heard? That, uh, for instance, suggest that they say that um, pregnant mothers shouldn't smoke because um, your baby will tend to have a lower birth weight because of that. Is that a similar type of thing? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, that because that's a direct effect, right? It's chemically interfering with the pregnancy at the time. But this would be, for instance, this would be something that you might eat when you are, say, a young person, not yet married. Uh, then it changes the epigenetic information in your gametes in your sex cells. And then you get married, you have children, and let's say then those children have a genetic propensity towards a type of cancer, for mm. instance. Wow. Example of what I'm talking about. So it's not that it directly affects them in that it, you know, it you know, causes them a limited blood flow or something like that, and so therefore they're born uh, smaller. They actually now have a genetic propensity for something, and it's because the epigenetic code was changed on their DNA. Okay, I, I got it now. That means if my mother were to eat more Cheerios and spinach, I'll be born stronger, right? Possibly. You might have a genetic propensity to being stronger, and it could be passed on to your children, actually. I'm actually kidding about the Cheerios. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we got, you know, that's so we can get our 50 bucks from... Uh, yeah, General uh, Mills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, so we talked about the cyclical change of the Darwin's finches. Let's talk about the cyclical change in the peppered moths. Peppered moths was frequently used as a evidence for evolution. But what we now know is that the moths cycle back and forth between dark and light-colored moths. So a couple of interesting things about that. When it first came out, remember they told us that it was because of the uh, pollution that made the trees turn dark. And so then the dark-colored moths that rested on the bark could be seen by birds. Uh, or I guess the dark ones weren't seen, the light ones were. So then the population would change. And then when the pollution was cleaned up and the the lichen on the trees was light again, and the light moths could hide again and things like that. Right. So, well, a couple of interesting problems with it. First of all, uh, the peppered moths don't light on the bark of trees. So they don't rest on the bark of trees. Their, their natural behavior is to rest up in the leaves of the trees where they can be protected from 
predators. So they're not stupid enough to rest on the bark of trees. Anyway, the photographs that you've seen in all the textbooks, those are moths that are glued on to the tree trunks. They're fake. Yeah, they're well, they're real moths. They're just glued there. The pictures are fake. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they, you know, and of course, I understand that. That's really not any big deal. It's what the scientists thought. They kind of just wove it into their story about noticing that the color of the moths had changed over time. The problem is that the color has already changed again, and there is no pollution problem turning the the bark of the trees and turning the lichen different colors it's just that this is what happens with this population that the peppered moths simply cycle back and forth so that for a few decades you have virtually all dark moths and then for a few decades you have virtually all light moths and it just cycles back and forth the interesting thing, too, though, about these stories is no matter what size beaks they have, the finches are still finches, and no matter what color they are, the moths are still moths. Right, and they keep reverting back to their normal uh, status. So the information is all there. It was already there to make light or dark. So the problem for evolutionists is to come up with macroevolution. They have to come up with new Information. Now, if you could show us how a finch could become a moth, then you'd really be showing us something. Ooh, yeah. I wonder if it was the Darwin's finches that were eating the moths that were landing on the bark of the trees. <laughs> I don't know. But then they probably would have been, you know, just glued. The, the finches would have been just glued to the tree, too. <laughs> or nailed. <laughs> exactly. If you weren't nailed to the perch, you'd be pushing up the daisies. <laughs> Yeah, so it isn't, but isn't that, uh, couldn't you call like when the, when the moth, well, let's use the finch, when the finch goes back to the small beak again, isn't that reverse evolution? Ooh, there you go. That's right. Yeah, we did an article. Remember, we did an article on that so called reverse evolution. Right. Which scientists supposedly didn't know could happen. Really? What scientist was it that didn't know that could happen? <laughs> A real true believer, I guess, a guy with way too much faith. Yeah, and I said something about, yeah, I, I know an example of that. There's a guy that lives right next to me that looks kind of like an ape. I think he's going backwards. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, one of the cyclical changes that we need to talk about uh, is the flu. If you, the flu strains, if you get a flu shot to help protect you from the flu, you are inherently acknowledging that macroevolution is false and that only microevolution is true because the way they determine how they should select the vaccine for any given year's flu strain is very interesting. There, there's a panel of scientists. What they do is, I'm sure most people know that the flu kind of goes around the world uh, each year. So they will look at, and, and every year there are uh, six or seven strains of flu. And what they'll do is they'll look at those strains of flu, and then they'll determine which strain of flu they ought to prepare for for the next year. Hmm. Because, for one thing, they, they don't want to give you six different flu shots. They want to give you the one that's going to be the main one. Of those six or seven, there's always one main one, or usually always one main one. And the rest are kind of per peripheral mutations of uh, that initial one. So 
what they'll do is they'll look at the different mutated viruses and the way they tell which one to do is they will compare it to the wild type, to the original type. And whichever one is closest to the original flu virus, that's the one they know is going to be the strongest next year. And they're almost always right. Hmm. So uh, so if you get your flu shot, you are essentially agreeing that macroevolution is false. Because otherwise, think about it, the virus would just keep mutating. So each year it would be a little bit different, and then the next year it would be a little bit more different. And they would never be able to tell which way it was going to go. Right. They wouldn't be able to prepare a uh, vaccine for it. That's right. And it would just keep mutating, 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 and they would almost always be wrong every time. But right. the fact that they're almost always right uh, shows uh, that macroevolution doesn't happen. Wow, interesting. Just mind, people, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Talking about the failure of evidence for macroevolution. Now, one of the ones, because of the failure of some of the past um, evidences, there's been a lot of newer ones that have come up. And so one of the newer ones is whale evolution. <laughs> now, Kirk, I don't think that you and I were taught this in school when we were kids. Nope. Um, there is this idea that over about 10 million years, evolutionists say that the whale developed from a small wolf-like mammal, completely terrestrial mammal, and it took about 10 million years for all of the specialized systems for living in the ocean to evolve. And this, this creature gradually evolved into a whale. Now, that would be an incredible feat. I mean, 10 million years is hardly anything in this time scale of things. And especially for a type of animal that does not breed very quickly. I mean, whales typically will have one offspring per year. Mm-hmm to things like bacteria or fruit flies where there's been so much experimentation over thousands and thousands of generations with no changes whatsoever. And to say that in just 10 million years, you could get this incredible amount of change, well, that is very surprising. But, you know, they'll line up these different fossils and they'll say, oh, look, you know, here's this you know, we've got these things that look like halfway between land animal and whale, and they just happen to fall in the right area of time. So here we go. Well, guess what? In 2011, there was a discovery of the oldest fully aquatic whale that dated to uh, – I guess I should have told you that the starting – fully land animal that starts about 50 million years old and what we were told was that you finally get to the aquatic stage the fully aquatic uh, bacillosaurids by 40 million years so that's about 10 million years time now they have discovered a fully aquatic whale dating to 49 million years ago so that time frame now is shrunk down to about 1 million years and you don't have any of the the semi-aquatic stuff. So uh, you have the Pachycetids, which was the fully terrestrial wolf-like creature at 50 million years. And then you go to fully aquatic male, a whale at 49 million years. And you've got all these 
semi-aquatic, supposedly transitional forms that show up later. True. That, that's a big change from a wolf-like, a small wolf-like creature to a whale, which is gigantic and is nothing like a wolf. I mean, could you pick two creatures that are more different from one another to say that one evolved into the other? Right. All kinds of specialized, you know, uh, blubber for keeping the animal warm. You know, you got to move the respiratory system, the opening to the respiratory system to the top. Um, sonar system, uh, you know, limbs going to flippers. I mean, you know, just incredible differences. And it would be just an amazing thing. Uh, for that to have actually happened. All kinds of new systems, all kinds of new information, and that's the problem, is where does that new information come from? And they say that Christians believe in magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my. All right, let's look at another one. This is the evidence of antibiotic resistance. You used to hear about this a lot, too, but the atheists seem not to talk about it anymore since they realize that it's been completely debunked. I still hear it from time to time. <laughs> Yeah, well, just like you hear about, like I heard about all the uh, bad information on the Shroud of Turin, the people just don't keep up with the science. But uh, the idea behind this is that bacteria can gain resistance to antibiotic. And so that's claimed, oh, look, you know, here's a mutation, and so this is a an improvement, and then natural selection will uh, weed out all the rest of the bacteria until this bacteria alone survives and it'll become fixed in the species and then you know it'll continue to improve from there well the problem is that the reason that the antibiotic no longer kills the bacteria is that the bacteria has lost genetic information so now it can't um eat essentially the antibiotic reverse evolution yep there you go reverse evolution lost information so <laughs> Antibiotics, at least for the ones we're talking about, some antibiotics work by being digested by the bacteria. And then when the bacteria digest or breaks down the uh, chemical from the antibiotic, it turns it into a poison, and that poison then kills the bacteria. But if a mutation, some change, breaks the gene that allows the bacteria to break down the antibiotic, then obviously it no longer can digest that antibiotic and it no longer turns it into a poison. But the problem is that that bacteria has now lost that important enzyme, that important biochemical system that it needs, and so it's less likely to survive, actually. And that's why you hear about these infections that people get in the hospital, but you don't run into those infections generally outside of the hospital. So it's mostly for people with affected immune systems right. who fight off even a very weak bacteria like these antibiotic-resistant bacteria are. They're actually much weaker than regular uh, bacteria. Hmm. So, and I think that when we had geneticist Robert Carter on, he spoke about that. I think he said that somebody recommended that if you think you've got one of these antibiotic-resistant bugs, then you should just roll around in a bunch of dirt because <laughs> uh, you'll pick up all the good, healthy bacteria uh, that don't have this broken gene, and they will outperform uh, and outsurvive the uh, the bad gene, <laughs> bad bacteria. So, again, another example of downward change and lost information. Mm. 
All right. Now, another thing that has been used in the past to try to promote evolution was Darwin's Tree of Life. Remember seeing those drawings? You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, and so draw some fancy pictures and you get across the idea. Oh, yeah. So they claim that they can draw a tree that shows how organisms are related to a common ancestor and they kind of just branch back and all those joinings where the branches join, that's where there's supposed to be some common ancestor. Even though we haven't found them in the fossil record, they're supposed to be there. Right. So the problem is that all these different attempts to draw trees are full of all kinds of inconsistencies. So you can draw trees based on the shapes of animals, or you can draw trees based on things like uh, protein similarities or DNA similarities. The problem is that they wind up producing all kinds of different trees that are completely different from each other. So they have essentially abandoned this effort um, there's a 2009 New Scientist article about this called Why Darwin Was Wrong About the Tree of Life. I've seen that article. Yeah, there just wasn't any ability to prove this stuff by comparing proteins or comparing DNA. You wind up with really bizarre things like chickens are more closely related to um, bananas than they are to other types of birds and things like that. I mean, it's, it's just very strange. And it's it's not very scientific when you have every uh, book that features a picture of the tree of life that the tree looks different in every book. You would think if this was really scientifically oriented that they would come up with a standard tree and that everybody would use that same tree, but they don't. Right, right. Okay. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about Haeckel's embryos. Now, we'll be brief about this because we have talked about this in the past. Uh, this used to be a very popular evidence for evolution, and you know it was in all the textbooks, all the biology textbooks, and so a lot of people have seen it. And you know he basically took embryos which were in what are considered the tadpole stage and tried to show uh, how similar they were and the problem is that they aren't that similar. So uh, if you actually look at the embryos, you see that Haeckel basically just adjusted his woodcuts is what how they used to do the illustrations uh, back in the 19th century. So, yes. Actually, I've got a uh, section in my book about this where I mentioned that uh, Haeckel's drawings continued to show up in school textbooks until 1997 believe it or not, yep. until a guy named Michael Richardson, who was an embryologist at a, uh, a medical school in London, proved that they were frauds by taking photographs. Now, Haeckel did drawings of these embryos. This guy Richardson took photographs of all the different embry embryos that Haeckel had drawn, and they, were, they all looked totally different. Right. Yeah, they're different sizes and all kinds of different shapes. And Yeah attachments that Haeckel left off and things like that. So Yeah, the drawings were a total fraud, really. <laughs> right. Um, and then finally, let's close with the idea about chimp-human similarities, because you still hear that occasionally. Um, evolutionists will claim that DNA is about 98% similar to human DNA. 
But what people don't realize is that these are comparisons of only small segments of DNA that were already known to be similar. You know, the uh, the biggest difference between humans and chimps is not what proteins are made. So looking at that, those protein differences, it's how the proteins are regulated. That's one of the major differences between chimps and humans. So it's that epigenomic code, not so much the DNA code. But even still, think about it. One comparison is the actual size of the genome itself, the genetic information. Chimp, a chimp genome is 10 to 12% larger than a human genome. So right away, how can you be 98% similar when the thing you're being compared to is 10 to 12% larger? <laughs> so, you know, uh, obviously there's a little business going on here. <laughs> So actually extremely large blocks of dissimilarity exist in a number of key chromosomes and including in the Y chromosome, the male chromosome, marked structural differences. So um, they're really – this. The best estimates now say that there's about a 70% similarity. Well, I'll begin to believe that chimps are 98% similar to us when I see a chimp in a business suit walk into a Starbucks and order a cup of coffee. There you go. And get his laptop out and start working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. If you have comments or questions, you can send them to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,